I became a follower of Jesus when I was 19 years of age. I was just heading into university, planned to go to law school. I wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, I enjoy studying and researching, discussing and debating, and the field of law in the realm of the courtroom intrigued me. It appealed to me. However, when I became a follower of Jesus, God immediately placed within me a desire for a different direction in life. Now, while I have absolutely no regrets about following this new direction, I still find myself watching court cases online, enjoying the back-and-forth banter, the cross-examinations, and the tension that surrounds it all. And the moment with the highest tension has to be the moment when the defendant is standing before the judge and the jury as the final verdict is being read aloud. Can you imagine what that would be like? To be standing there, waiting to hear the pronouncement, waiting to hear the declaration, your future in the hands of these people. Did you know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, one day you will stand before the throne of God, your life will be examined, and a pronouncement will be made? Now you're thinking to yourself, what kind of examination? What kind of pronouncement? I mean, I thought my sins were paid for by Jesus. Are you saying that I still have to worry about being judged and condemned by God for all the things that I've done wrong? That is what we're going to discover today as we continue in our Life Hacks series, a verse-by-verse study of the New Testament letter known as 1 Corinthians. Now, when we began this series, we pointed out that when you're reading 1 Corinthians, you're reading a personal letter. And when you're reading a personal letter, you're eavesdropping in on a conversation. There's a context to the letter. There's a history behind the letter. And you can't truly understand what's in the letter until you understand what's behind the letter. And what's behind this letter is a lot of confusion and conflict. The author of the letter, a man named Paul, spent about 18 months in the city of Corinth. And while he was there, he started a church. He was the founding pastor. Paul then moved on from Corinth, and he left the church he founded in the hands of some leaders. And soon after, problems began to bubble up within the Corinthian church. Problems that he addresses in this letter that he wrote to them. Now, one of the problems was Gnosticism. Now, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism was the belief that the physical realm is evil and only the invisible realm is good. Gnosticism was the belief that you had to be part of the elite, the mystically enlightened crowd, to be considered truly mature and truly knowledgeable. Gnostics claimed to have deep insights into things. Gnostics claimed to have access to secret truths about reality. And the Corinthians were apparently buying into this Gnostic garbage. And Paul didn't hesitate to tell them what he thought. Look what he writes. He says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. My parents, when we were children, took home movies. And every few years when we'd go visit my parents, we'd go pull out the home movies. And as kids, we'd watch ourselves from decades ago. And I can still see a home movie that my parents took when I was about four years old, maybe. We were up at a a beach in um, Ontario, and they had pictures of me in the water, in water like this deep, just about a foot deep. And I was there as a child 
pretending I was swimming. And I would make my arms go down like this and I'd be kind of crawling along in the water. I can still actually remember doing that. That's the bizarre thing. As I'm watching this whole movie, I remember that moment taking place. And I actually thought I was fooling people. I thought everyone around me thinks I'm swimming. I am so cool. I am so mature. I am so grown up. Now, what I was doing when it came to swimming, the Corinthians were doing when it came to life. Paul was saying, Corinthians, you think you are so mature, so sophisticated, so spirit-led, but in reality, you're not, and it's obvious. Paul was saying, although you do have the Spirit of God living within you, you're not acting as though you do. I mean, you should be acting with the wisdom that comes with being indwelt by the Spirit of God. You should be acting like adults in Christ. Instead, you're acting like babies in Christ. Now, apparently, Paul had been informed back then that in Corinth, they were comparing his teaching with the Gnostics' teaching. And Paul had been informed that the Corinthians were saying, listening to Paul's teaching, that's like drinking milk. Listening to the Gnostics' teaching, that's like eating steak. So how does Paul respond to this? He does something actually quite clever. And he does it in a way that actually goes over a lot of people's heads nowadays. A lot of people misunderstand what Paul is saying in verse 2. So, for the sake of argument, Paul just goes along with what they're saying about his teaching. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't push back. He just flows with what they're saying. He pretends that he accepts their comparison, and then he throws it back in their faces. Look at verse 2. He says, oh, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. Paul is saying, you are thinking that I gave you milk and not solid food because you're messed up in your thinking. You see my message as milk because you're not thinking and judging like people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. You're thinking and judging like mere human beings. So, although the Spirit of God does dwell within you, Corinthians, you're not behaving as though he lives within you. That's why you can't see my message for what it truly is. And why could they not see it? Keep reading what he says. Paul says, you still can't see it because you are still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Now, the translators have used the word worldly here, and that's a bit unfortunate because in today's church culture, the word worldly tends to mean something it did not mean 2,000 years ago. When Christians today use the word worldly, we tend to mean a copy of how our world looks or what our world values. Well, that's not what Paul was trying to communicate back then. Paul used the ancient Greek word sarkinoi, It means the the natural, physical aspect of life, if you will. It was a word that emphasized the physical side of human existence, as opposed to the spiritual side of human existence. This accusation would have stung the Corinthians, since they saw themselves as being so attuned to spiritual realities. But Paul was saying, your behavior shows that you are more in tune with the physical realm than you are with the spiritual realm. 
Paul was saying, you're acting like you're swimming, but you're not fooling anyone. Your actions show what is really going on. Paul says, you're still worldly, for since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Now, we miss it in the English, but Paul used a different word for the second use of worldly in this verse. For the first worldly, Paul used the Greek word sarkinoi. For the second worldly in the verse, Paul used the Greek word sarkikoi. Now, what's the difference? The difference is subtle, but the difference is there, and that's why Paul used a different word. The second time. The second word has an added layer of ethical overtones to it. The second word has an added element of immorality to it. It was the word you might use to describe someone who was living according to their instincts, living according to their animal nature. So, essentially, Paul's saying, you're still acting like the only thing that you have access to is the physical realm. Since you're filled with jealousy and since you're fighting with each other, are you not acting like animals? Isn't that how animals behave? Paul says, literally, are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What does he mean, mere human beings? It means humans without access to the realms of the Spirit. Humans acting only on their physical impulses, only on their animal instincts. So he's saying, when you divide into packs and fight with each other, isn't that what animals do? Paul then goes on to show the Corinthians how they are completely missing the point when they fight over leaders that God sends their way. Look what Paul writes. He says, What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything— but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters, they have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we're co-workers in God's service. You're God's field. You're God's building. So Paul is saying, Apollos and I and every other pastor or teacher God sends your way, we are not the ones who grow God's church. God's the one who grows his church. Paul says, Now, the church in Corinth is God's field, and Apollos and I are shovels and plows that God uses to till the soil. The church in Corinth is God's building, and Apollos and I, we're hammers and nails that God uses to assemble his building. Paul is saying, why are you focusing upon the instruments instead of focusing upon the farmer? Why are you focusing upon the construction tools instead of focusing upon the builder? And then Paul takes things to another level, to another dimension, to another realm. And this is where we're going to spend our last couple of moments together, discovering and applying a powerful application to our own lives, our lives today and our lives in eternity. Paul continues with his metaphor of God's people being like a building, and Paul warns the leaders that God is watching them that they'll be accountable for what they do to God's church. Look what Paul says, beginning at verse 10. He says, Now by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and now someone else is building on it. Paul's saying, God gave me the ability to do what I do. God gave me the ability to go to Corinth, 
preach the good news, start the church that now exists there. Now, other builders have since built upon the foundation I laid when I was there. He says, but each one should, be, should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says, those who have come after me and are building today, they need to be very careful. They need to make sure that everything they're building is grounded upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Who or what is the foundation of your life? Who or what is ground zero for your existence? Who or what is the source of your values, your goals, your eternal destiny? Who or what has the deciding vote in your life? When you get right down to it, who or what sits at the core, at the center, at the foundation of your life? Please hear this truth. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Meaning, the foundation of your life, if it's not the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the foundation in your life is otherwise sinking sand. Remember a couple of months ago, the series we did here at Broadway, Money, Sex, and Power, where we talked about the idols in our lives and how we give other things the power that only God has, whether it be money, whether it be sexuality, whether it be power and influence in our lives. If you are looking to anything else than Jesus Christ, anyone else other than Jesus Christ, to be the foundation of your life, your life will ultimately implode. Only Jesus has the ability to live a perfect sinless life. Only Jesus died in your place. Only Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus offers you forgiveness and cleansing. That's why no other foundation can be laid other than the one already laid, which is Jesus. If you've not accepted his gift, if you've not placed your life in his hands on that foundation, at the end of today's teaching, in just a couple moments, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that very thing. Well, Paul then continues his warning to the Corinthian leaders. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Paul says, the choices and the decisions that you're making are like building materials. And some materials are better than other materials. And there's coming a day in the future, he's saying, when the choices that you're making are going to be exposed for all to see. Now, Paul used a word here that had a double meaning. Paul said, the day will bring it to light. Circle or underline the word day in your Bible or on your outlines. The word day has two meanings. It means the time when the sun is shining, giving light to our eyes, enabling us to see everything around us. He said, the day will bring it to light. But notice that the word day is capitalized in this verse. That's the translator's way of telling us that the word day also means the day of judgment. The day that the prophets warned would be coming in the future. The moment in history when God will finally, once and for all, bring justice to the earth. 
Paul is warning the leaders in the Corinthian church to be very careful with what they are doing because their decisions, their actions have eternal consequences. Well, how so? Keep reading what Paul said. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now, the imagery of fire is often used as a way of communicating testing in the Bible. And that's how Paul appears to be using it here. On the day of judgment, the results of those leadership decisions and choices will be tested. And only that which survives the test will be rewarded by God. And it's possible, Paul declares, that some church leaders will stand before God after the smoke is cleared and they will have nothing left to be rewarded. Now, they themselves will be saved. This is not a matter of whether they're going to go to heaven or hell. Paul is speaking to Christ followers here. He's speaking to men and women who have trusted Christ with their sin and their shame. People who have put their faith in what Jesus has done on their behalf. Paul is not talking about eternal life. Paul is talking about eternal rewards. Well, what kind of rewards? How will people be rewarded? Paul doesn't say. Paul likely didn't know. Nonetheless, he assures us that rewards will be waiting. Now hear this. This is crucial. This is not just for church leaders. What's being taught here is bigger than church politics. What's being described here is a life principle, a reality for every follower of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you will one day stand before God and your life's decisions and your life's actions will be put to the test. Not for the purpose of you being condemned, but for the purpose of you being rewarded. Salvation is a gift. It's not a work that you earn. It's a gift you receive. In another letter to another church, Paul put it this way. He said, it's by grace you have been saved. It's through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by work so that no one can boast. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation that Paul mentioned earlier. A lot of people in our world have this mistaken view that at the end of our lives, we'll stand before God and there'll be these scales of justice and God will put all of our good deeds on one side of the scale and all of our bad deeds on the other side. And if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, then we'll go into heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that none of us are good enough. None of us have the deeds to outweigh the sin in our lives. All have sinned, all have fallen short. That's why Jesus came. That's why salvation is a gift that we receive. But that doesn't mean that our deeds are meaningless. No, our deeds have meaning, but not for the purpose of salvation, but for the purpose of reward. You, as a follower of Jesus Christ, will stand before God someday, and your life will be tested and rewarded. As Paul seems to de depict the scene, it's the throne of God and, and, and there's a, a giant altar before that throne and all of our deeds in our lives somehow symbolically represented. And we, we lay all those deeds down before the throne of God. And then as I envision it, 
thunderbolts and lightning shoot forth from the throne of God and fire begins to consume things on that altar. All the deeds that represent the deeds of our choices of our lives are there. And when the smoke clears, what's left will be rewarded. As the smoke clears, what waits for you at that moment? What's the quality of the decisions that you are making day by day in your life? You say, Darren, how can I know? I mean, what can I do to prepare for that moment? What's God looking for? What kind of decisions, what kind of choices will survive the fire? Well, we've already learned today that the key in life is to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. That means what will be rewarded is a life whose choices and decisions were grounded and focused and centered upon Jesus. Okay, so does that mean only what I do when I'm in church will get rewarded? Does that mean the only activities that count are the activities that are directly tied to church? No, life as a follower of Jesus is not that narrow. What will be rewarded is a Christ-centered life. Well, what does a Christ-centered life look like? A Christ-centered life is actually quite simple. First of all, you believe what Jesus believed. That means that your views and your values in life are sourced in the views and values of Jesus. Secondly, you teach what Jesus taught. That means the directives that you give to others are rooted in the directives that Christ has given to you. Thirdly, you live like Jesus lived. That means to the best of your ability, as empowered by God's indwelling spirit, your life is shaped by Christ's life. And fourthly, it means you love like Jesus loved. That means you view and treat the people around you as Christ views and treats you. That's Christ-centered living. And if those qualities describe the overall flavor of your life, if those qualities represent the desired goal of your life, if those qualities reflect the general theme of your life, you can know for certain that there will be decisions and deeds that flow from your life that will survive the test. You can know for certain that there will be something in your life that will be rewarded on that day. Which brings us to today's life hack, today's practical solution to an everyday problem. Here it is. A life that is rooted in Jesus is guaranteed to be rewarded by Jesus. A life that is rooted in Jesus is guaranteed to be rewarded by Jesus. Step back with me into that courtroom that we imagined uh, at the beginning of today's teaching. The scene where the defendant is standing before the judge and jury, awaiting the verdict. The tension, the fear, the anxiety, the waiting, the wondering, the worrying. Hear me now. None of that applies to what we discussed today. As a follower of Jesus Christ, when you stand before God, there'll be no tension. There'll be no fear. There'll be no anxiety. There is no wondering. There's no worrying. Why? Because when you trust your past to the work of Jesus Christ, when you live your present in the light of Jesus Christ, you can know your future will be secure in Jesus Christ. Because a life that is rooted in Jesus is guaranteed to be rewarded by Jesus. Let's pray together. 
God, I thank you that we can trust you. I thank you that we can rest our past, our present, and indeed our future in your hands. I thank you that perfect love casts out all fear, and you love us with the purest, most perfect love imaginable. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's what the Bible says, and that's what we believe, and that's what we hold on to. So we thank you for the security we have in knowing you. Now help us to live lives that please you. Help us to live lives that will be rewarded by you. If you're watching today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've not yet accepted this gift. What you're doing is you're living your life on sinking sand. And right now, I'm extending to you the offer. I'm extending to you the opportunity to get out of that mud, to get out of the sinking sand, and to be lifted out by Jesus Christ, by his life, his death, and his resurrection. I'm giving you right now the opportunity to accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal life and invite his spirit to come and dwell within you. If you would like to accept this gift, then pray with me right now. God, I acknowledge my rebellion. I acknowledge my waywardness. I acknowledge I've not lived the life you designed for me to live. I don't want to live this way anymore. I accept your gift of forgiveness. I accept your, your gift of your indwelling presence. Now, I don't claim to understand it all, but what I do understand, I choose to believe and act upon. So come, dwell within me. Begin to change and transform me from the inside out from this moment forward. By the authority of the name and the power and the life of Jesus of Nazareth, I pray this prayer. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. Now, on the screen right now, you'll see a number. Can I make this recommendation to you? I suggest that you text that number. It's a great next step to take. Now, don't worry, we're not tricking you. You're not joining Broadway Church. You're not about to be placed on some mailing list or be harassed or hounded in any way. One of our staff will simply respond to your text with another text saying, congratulations and offer our services to you in any way we can. Well, thank you for joining with us today. I pray and hope that you'll join us next week as we continue in our Life Hacks series. God bless you. Thank you for being with us at Broadway Church today.